Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Hey, how you doing out there? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, and I have a great show for you today. My guest is Kara Blue Adams, author of the critically acclaimed story collection entitled You Never Get It Back. You can have lived through something or have an experience and not be able to render it because you both need to pay close attention to the thing and really be able to see it. And then you need to be able to sort out, you know, what you want to present to the reader that will give them kind of the full picture. That was Kara Blue Adams, whose debut story collection, You Never Get It Back, is available now from the University of Iowa Press. This is an excellent book, you guys. It's really, really good. It was recently longlisted for the Story Prize, and it won the John Simmons Award for Short Fiction. Kara Blue Adams has published stories in a variety of leading literary magazines, including Granta, The Kenyon Review, The Sun, The Mississippi Review, and many more. Her stories individually have been awarded prizes, and she was a 2018 Center for Fiction Emerging Writers Fellow. You Never Get It Back is Kara Blue Adams's debut, and it has got to be one of the finer debuts of the year. I loved meeting her and talking with her about this new book and about her life story a little bit. So stay tuned. That is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Echo Books, publisher of the novel Drowning Practice by Mike McGinnis, due out on March 15th. There's a lot of buzz about this one. Maybe you've heard of it. Have you heard of it? Drowning Practice is an apocalypse novel. It tells the story of a mother and a daughter who are trying to save each other's lives at what could be the end of the world. Kirkus calls Drowning Practice, quote, twisty and moving, an apocalypse novel that will keep readers guessing until the last page. And Matt Bell calls it, quote, the best new novel I've read in ages. 
How about that? That's Drowning Practice by Mike McGinnis, available now from Echo Books. All right, so it's time for some thank yous. I have some listeners to thank for pre-ordering my new book. Again, it is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is due out this year on May 10th. Thank you to Adrian McBride, Joseph Grantham Sr., Patty Grantham, Gloria Hattrick, Molly Merriman, and Adam Greenfield. Huge thanks, everybody. I appreciate the kind support. If you are out there and you're listening and you would like to pre-order a copy of my novel, I would certainly appreciate it. It will help the cause. Just go to bradlisty.com. It's easy. It's all right there. You can use whatever online bookseller you prefer. Again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And if you pre-order a copy and you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will send you a little note in the mail, along with an official Other People sticker. And I will give you a shout-out here on the podcast. I will say your name in the monologue. One more time, the novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. To pre-order it, just go to bradlisty.com and then email me your proof of purchase. The show's email address is letters at otherppl.com or else you can DM uh, the show on social media, on Twitter or on Instagram. So speaking of the show, uh, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but this podcast is actually featured in my book. Because, you know, as I've said many times, it, the, the book is a work of autofiction. It's definitely fiction in the ultimate sense, but it's uh, autofiction. There's no hiding. It's, a, you know, it's me reckoning with my stuff on the page. And the main character is named Brad, and he has a podcast called Other People. And I should note, as I'm uh, breaking this news here, that a select few guests from the past make cameo appearances in the book. So get ready for that. And I'm not going to tell you who it is either. You have to read the book to find out. But if you're a fan of the show, if you're curious, uh, I feel like you should stay tuned. You should be aware of the fact that the podcast is part of the book. And if it's autofiction, how could it not be, right? Otherwise, this month I am going to be going into the studio to record the audiobook edition of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And I like saying this. I've been saying this a little bit around the house to my wife and children about how I have to go into the studio. It's just nice to be able to say you have to go into the studio because it sounds like you're going to make an album or something. The audiobook edition of my novel is going to be produced and distributed by Tantor Media, a division of recorded books, which is great. And I'm happy that they're going to let me be the voice of the book in audio. That was important to me. And frankly, it would be strange if I were not the, the reader of the book, right? So the process takes about three days, apparently got to go into the studio for three full days, lay down some tracks. And I think if I'm concerned about anything, it's just mispronouncing words, doing something stupid. Like hopefully somebody from Tantor will be there to help me out. And it's not like, <laughs> it's not like my book is riddled with difficult to pronounce words. I know how to pronounce 
as it turns out, most all of the words in my book, which is always positive. But uh, you know what I mean. I just want it to be right. And I think from a production value standpoint, what I would like or what I would imagine would be ideal is if the book feels like an extended monologue. I want it to feel natural. Sometimes audiobooks feel too stilted. I want my audiobook to be uh, in its effect like I'm talking to you. Though I guess it would be strange to have someone talking to you for that long, uninterrupted. All right, so let's get to today's guest, Cara Blue Adams. Her award-winning debut story collection is called You Never Get It Back. It's out there now from the University of Iowa Press. Long listed for the story prize, it is a wonderful book. I recommend it. You Never Get It Back is a collection of linked short stories that takes the reader into the life of a protagonist named Kate Bishop, who is originally from small-town New England, but who moves around a lot over the course of the book, from Maine to Virginia to Boston to New Mexico. Maybe not in that order, but you know what I mean. Kate Bishop is navigating early adulthood and family life and romance and friendship, just the stuff of the everyday. And the end result when you finish reading this book is that these characters feel like people you know intimately. They are so deftly drawn, so human, so real in their effect, that you find yourself riveted by the smallest moments. Kara Blue Adams is really good at taking the ordinary stuff of life and magnifying it in such a way that it becomes powerful and meaningful and moving in unexpected ways. This is a totally absorbing book, and I'm really glad to be in conversation with Kara Blue Adams as she makes this fine debut. So let's get to it. Here she is, folks. This is Kara Blue Adams. And her new story collection, One More Time, is called You Never Get It Back. So I grew up on what was then a road called Solar Road. It's a private dirt road. It's a dead-end road. The state doesn't maintain it. The neighbors all pool money to pay for it to be graded and plowed and, and that kind of thing. And so growing up, it was called Solar Road. At some point, 911 came in and wanted to like standardize street names. And in that process, the road got renamed. So now it's Old Town Road, which doesn't feel true to the spirit. I was going to say, to Solar sounds a lot more like, like Vermont hippies. And are you at a remove from neighbors? Like I'm trying to get a visual on it. Like how, far, how close was your nearest neighbor? Yeah, so originally you couldn't see any other houses from our house. That's now basically still true, but there's been like a one more house built on the road and some trees cleared away. So you could walk to a neighbor's house, but there were no other children around. So I had limited reason <laughs> to to do that, although I would, you know, do things like at some point I made some paintings and made raffle tickets and went around to all of the neighbors and asked if they would buy a raffle ticket to win one of my paintings. (laughs) I was five or six or something. But these were not, there were no kids at these houses. No, no, just adults. Yeah. 
so I don't, okay. So that's interesting. Cause you would think like the back to the landers would come and they would have a brood or something. I'm always imagining like hippie children along with it, but these were mostly just childless couples or. Yeah, there was, um, one couple that had like donkeys and maybe some other animals, but when they went away, I would sometimes be paid a nominal amount to take care of the donkeys. There was a single man who lived in New York and had a second home at the top of the road. So he would be in town sometimes. But yeah, there were definitely like other families with kids. They just weren't close to us. So on Halloween, for example, my parents would drive us from house to house so that we could go to some friends' houses and just get to enough houses to actually like get some candy. But you would go in and stay a while because, you know, the next house was like a 10 minute drive away, maybe. That's kind of nice, actually, because nowadays you live in a neighborhood, the kids are just racing, you know, there's nothing personal about it at all. They just, <laughs> grab, they just grab their candy and run, you know, to the next house to get more. That's like nice. It's a nice leisurely pace. I was also imagining you riding donkeys to go trick-or-treating, <laughs> but I guess that didn't happen. <laughs> no, I don't think I ever rode the donkeys, Pete and Marguerite. <laughs> Horses occasionally, but but not the donkeys. Okay. And you grew up, um, like, like, uh, your heroine, Kate Bishop dealing with, uh, issues of poverty, correct? Yeah. Yep. I think that's, um, fair to say. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And can you just talk a little bit about how those experiences informed the collection or the novel? I mean, we're going to talk about the classification issues around your book. I feel like there's been some debate about what it is, but we'll call it a collection um, because it is that. I think it's kind of both things at the same time almost. But it's definitely a book that has class and poverty on its mind and like what the impacts are. I think maybe especially on 
the children who are kind of born into these situations and who are working to try to transcend their circumstances. When you were a kid, were you aware of it or was it something that you became aware of like later in life? I think I was aware of it as a child. You know, my parents got divorced when I was 10 or so and that definitely kind of worsened my family's economic situation as it tends to do you know, especially for single mothers. So I was aware of it. And certainly as I got older and our money struggles were perhaps more foregrounded in my life, I was increasingly aware. But, you know, a number of things were obscured. You know, for one thing, it was only as an adult that I realized that there had been a number of children in the area who I'd never met. And I live in a, you know, grew up in a very small town, 2000 people, maybe no traffic light, very, very small place. And so it was sort of shocking to realize that there have been children my age I I just never met at all. And that was because they'd gone to private school, starting with kindergarten. And so there were some very good private schools, including the Putney School, which is a kind of experimental, very liberal private high school, boarding school in my town. But I'd gone to public school the whole way through. And only as an adult did I did I realize that there had been these two, you know, very distinctly marked classes of children leading in a way kind of parallel lives. And then money, I think the question of social class is just a really complex one because it has to do with money, but also education and cultural capital, of course. And I think it's, you know, in New England, especially kind of obscured. There's a sense that if you have a lot of money, you're not supposed to flaunt it. So, you know, you're going to drive a beat up old car, even if you do have a lot of money, you know, your clothing won't necessarily be flashy. So I also think that as a child, I didn't always realize that, for example, people whose parents were painters, that their parents maybe weren't making a living as painters or ceramicists, right. <laughs> or poets. Right, right. <laughs> I thought those were all realistic career paths for a while. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, no, it's weird how these things sort of like bury themselves or how, I don't know, for me, it was something that didn't become apparent until I got to college. I had a pretty comfortable upbringing, but was squarely middle class, really, for most of it. Went to public school. And then I got to college and started to meet people who really had money. And it was like, whoa, like I didn't realize the playing field was like this. <laughs> it was a big surprise to me. I did not realize that, uh, that things were so uneven and I didn't have any sense of the consequences of that until I, I was much older. Yeah. College to me is a fascinating place because it does bring people together from very different walks of life and very different backgrounds. And it asks people to live together often in a very kind of intimate way. And there's a sort of assumption that everyone, you know, that you're all peers, you're all attending classes together. There's a sort of group identity that encompasses everybody. But at the same time, some of those differences, I think, can start to become very apparent at that point. You see the way in which it's true and in which the way in which it's not true that your peers are equals. Well, the way that I that you handle it in the book is through the character of Esme, largely, uh, and the relationship that Kate has with her former roommate, right, in college. So speaking of having people from different backgrounds living together in an intimate way, like this is case in point, and 
the thing that I loved about Esme is that I liked her and <laughs> it would be easy to make her a hateful character that you just kind of, you know, categorize as a villain but she's clueless in some way about her privilege and the way that people who are privileged often are, or almost always are, uh, simply because it was just the way she was raised. It was what she was born into. She didn't ask for it any more than Kate asked to be born into more difficult circumstances. So there's compassion, I think, in your rendering of Esme. And I think she's good at heart, even if she has these blind spots. Like, is that how you feel about her? Yeah, I'm so glad that you feel that way. Yeah, I, I love Esme, actually. I think she's both really fun for me as a writer on the page as a character. And yeah, I definitely see her as a character about whom there are many really good and, and redeeming things. And I got to say, too, having been around my fair share of wealthy young people <laughs> in my college days, is that there is something undeniably fun about people who are not worried about money. Like there's all sorts of different ways to parse it. And there's all sorts of problems that I have with it, but it's also fun. <laughs> and I think Esme embodies that like she's, she's a good person at heart, but she's also good company. Like, she, you know, you want to kind of go on vacation with Esme. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. She's like, you know, she makes things happen because she wants things. She doesn't feel ashamed of wanting them. And she can often get the things that she wants. And this sense of that there are certain people in life who have such great expectations for life, like unabashed, like great expectations. Uh, I struggle with this. Like, I don't know if I have that in me, the kind of person who just sort of expects that life is going to kind of roll out the red carpet for me or that <laughs> like this big, huge existence with all this fanfare and like glory is like is due to me or something <laughs> like some people have that not even necessarily in a in a bad way or in a way that's kind of gross like some of it's actually kind of inspiring or, or uh fascinating to me do, do you know what i'm getting at oh totally yeah those <laughs> those people fascinate me too i i'm just so temperamentally different i always have the sense that when I leave a room, no one remembers that I was there. I, I feel like I'm invisible. That, that is exactly how I feel. I, I, really? I've told this story a million times, but like it has like the, the uh, marker for me of like what kind of person I am, like from a charisma standpoint or just from like a presence, whatever you want to call it standpoint. But if I am at a bar and it is a crowded bar, which I almost never am anymore, but when I was younger, and everyone's sort of vying for the bartender's attention to get a drink. I am without fail, the last person that the bartender goes to. And <laughs> I have, I have friends who are the first person and I don't get it, but I'm always like, it's like I'm invisible. They don't even see me until like, I'm literally the only person standing there. <laughs> and I don't know what that is, but it makes me feel bad about myself. Like, what am I lacking? I, I want to drink too. You know, I'm just trying to be polite. Maybe I need to be like pushier or something. Or maybe they just think that you look like an understanding person and not like a jerk. And so they're like, well, he'll, he can be patient. He'll understand. That's what it is. They're taking advantage of my decency. And then like, <laughs> I do feel like sometimes the person who's pushy and who like really just sort of like speaks out, they sometimes get better treatment as a result, even though they might not deserve it. Yeah, it's true. You want that not to be the case. 
but sometimes it does work. I think Esme is that way. She totally is that way. Yeah. And, but like also kind of irrepressible, like it's like hateful, but you like her anyway. And I think that she is deftly drawn because there are people precisely like that in the world, especially people who come from backgrounds like she comes from where she's had a lot of like good fortune by virtue of her lucky birth, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, she was interesting to me in part because Kate is struggling sometimes even just to figure out what it is that she wants, perhaps out of a sense that, you know, there's only so much she's really allowed to want. Um, and Esme is so clear about what she wants and what she's going to do to get it. And I think, you know, she has a lot to teach Kate, even if Kate also has a lot to teach her, not to make it sound too pedagogical or, <laughs> or serious or something. But, you know, I think we're sometimes drawn to people who aren't like us because they do have something to contribute that's worth thinking about. Right. Yeah. That, that, it's actually nice when it works like that. I think we could all, we can all use friends who aren't too much like us because I have some of those friendships and they might be more frustrating than other friendships or they just require more work. But I think they, they do educate you more than like the friend who's like your, you know, your really close friend who's a lot like you temperamentally shares your politics, likes the same art that you like, you know what I'm saying? Like somebody like that can be great too. But I think the tension that you, that you have with somebody who is coming from a completely different vantage can be useful. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the writer, Charles Baxter, whose fiction I really admire and whose writing on craft has been really influential in my life as a writer. He writes about the idea of having characters who are counterpointed so instead of um, thinking about two characters who are in conflict with each other, which is a kind of traditional way to think about an, you know, an engine that might drive a story or novel forward, he suggests that we think instead about counterpoint because it's a more nuanced way of thinking about how two people might relate to each other. And you know, he says we're always sort of understanding ourselves in comparison with other people through contrasts that we understand ourselves. And so it makes sense that if you put two characters together who are dissimilar, you can see each one more clearly. And then there's a way that they can kind of push and pull on each other that's more complicated or more nuanced than like overt conflict. What other did, has Baxter written a craft book? Yeah, he has an essay. Um, collection called Burning Down the House that I really love. I want to ask you about Nick Adams, because I know that this is, you know, a seed of this collection. And I think, is it fair to say that it inspired like the, the big idea of it? I would say maybe not that it inspired the big idea of it, but that after I began shaping the collection, I started to think about the Nick Adams stories and returned to them and looked at them and, and thought, Oh, it's so interesting the way that, you know, Hemingway, he didn't put those together as a book, but he wrote about that character throughout his life, Nick Adams. And then later those stories were kind of put together and they form this kind of constellation that brings into view this character, you know, moving through childhood into adulthood. Do you like those stories? Some of them I like a lot. Others I think feel a little inert or like sketches to me. Although I don't always mind that. I, I think it's nice, you know, in a collection like that to see all the different ways that a story can function. 
there's a lot of range there actually. But in general, I like Hemingway's work and I like his short stories a lot. I think some of his short stories are really just incredible. Yeah. And the title of your book is pulled from Hills Like White Elephants, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the, and it's interesting to me to think of it happening, like think of you realizing what you were doing sort of mid stride. I think this often happens with theme in writing fiction. You know, I think for a long time, I felt like I needed to learn how to write a short story before I could try writing a novel. It just seemed like the more attainable goal. <laughs> but the more I read short stories, and I, I really loved the form, the more I saw that they could do and the more I wanted to try doing myself. And so I wrote short stories that were fabulous. I wrote short stories that were realist. I wrote very brief stories. I wrote very long stories. And I got just sort of entranced with the the story form. And so it was quite a while before I felt like there was something cohering between the stories that would mean that I had not just individual stories, but a collection taking form. And it was like even longer still before this idea of having one central character as the through line presented itself. It's weird how slowly these things can emerge. And yet when I read the book, it feels like it was there from the start, which is like, that's the magic trick, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's, it's so fully realized. It's such a fully realized world. And, I, you know, I, the New York Times review, I think, alludes to this, but it's like, it's a story collection, but it kind of reads like a novel. I think a reader could easily characterize it either way, but it is also a book that is gripping and really emotionally involving, but it does so at like what I, I mean, I don't want to sound reductive, but it's like at the, at the level of domestic concern at the level of everyday life. Like there's nothing pyrotechnic in the way of like modern culture's tendencies when it comes to narrative, you know, there's no like car chase. <laughs> and yet I'm like desperately concerned for these characters and wanting to know what's going to happen to Kate and her friends and, you know, and her relationships and all the, all the rest. And what it was for me is just like another lesson because I require apparently like multiple <laughs> repeat lessons in this notion that the stuff of everyday life, if you render it artfully, can be every bit as riveting as the stuff that's flashier and uh, more quote unquote dramatic. So mm -hmm. kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah. The, a lot of the writers I love the most, I think are really good at that. I think Hemingway is one of those writers, actually, he can look at a very ordinary everyday scene and render it in a way that contains so much feeling. Um, in part by carving things away. Um, and I love that too, that very condensed kind of quality. Everyone's heard the iceberg thing, so I, I won't repeat that, but <laughs> you, know, you really do feel in this work, there's, there's so much happening beneath the surface. And Amy Hempel is another writer who I think does that just extraordinarily well. And Anne Beatty too. So those are three writers I really, really studied to try to understand how can they do it? How, how can they look at the world at some small aspect of the world and make it feel so important, make it feel so much bigger. And it happens, I think, through language and through depth of attention. 
and through some kind of mysterious thing that I'm not sure I'll ever fully understand. I was going to say, because you're somebody who I think very logically said to herself, like, I need to learn how to write a story before I write a novel. Like first learn to walk, then learn to fly or whatever. And then uh, you took a kind of scientific approach, like studying short stories, trying to figure out how they worked, reading craft books and all the rest. You also edited the Southern Review down in Baton Rouge, correct? Uh, yeah, exactly. For five years. And that job, I want to say I read an interview you did and you, you referred to it as every bit as much of an education as the education that you received in college or in, in your post-grad work. Uh, can you talk about what editing the review did for your understanding of fiction and short fiction in particular? Yeah, that really was such an informative time in my life as a writer. You know, I think it pushed me to both articulate to myself my own values as a reader. So what it was that I was looking for and why. And what, then what are you looking for and why? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing is, you know, I, I want to believe what I'm reading. It's, it's so basic. It's so fundamental. It seems kind of silly to say it, but I really want to believe that if you mail me a short story <laughs> and I, I know who you are and I see your name on the manuscript and it's narrated by an old woman who lives in France and raises parakeets, I really want to keep sort of checking to make sure that you <laughs> and not an old woman who lives in France and raises parakeets wrote this story. Like I want it to feel real, even if it's narrated by, you know, a talking dog. I, I want to fully believe <laughs> that that dog is real, even if I, you know, intellectually know that's not the case. And that has to do, I think, with detail and just with the honesty, with a kind of rigor and a kind of honesty on the page. So, you know, Amy Hempel, I had the pleasure of studying with at a summer conference. And one thing she would say in the workshop sometimes is tell the harder truth. So don't just tell the truth, but tell the harder truth. By which I think she meant, you know, be more honest. Be honest, but then be a little bit more honest. Be a little bit more rigorous. Be a little bit more surprising. And that's really something that I found I was wanting in stories. And when I stopped being able to believe this story, that was a real problem for me as a reader. I also wanted, I think, depth and humor and surprise. And I think often even writers... I didn't think of as funny. I came to understand were funny in some way. There was some sort of wry sense of humor at work there that was pleasurable. And of course, you can be honest without being surprising. So that's kind of another element. So I always wanted to, you know, even if I was involved in the story on page one and enjoying it on page five, when I got to page nine, I wanted something new to be happening. And that could do have to do with plot. It could have to do with how the character was being revealed. It could have to do with all sorts of things, but I, I wanted to continue to be surprised and, and depth. I wanted there to be depth there. So I think that, you know, seeing thousands of stories every year and, you know, at first I screened every single submission that came in. As I got more senior, I ultimately had a, an assistant who would screen things for me, but I would work with her at first, you know, to make sure we were on the same page about how she was 
the determination she was making. And then I would look at sort of the, the top percentile of manuscripts that she found once I made sure I could trust her assessments as lining up with my own. But you just saw again and again, right? Like as a writer, you just see what you're doing on the page and then you see the published work out in the world. But when you see that sort of in-between kind of moment in a manuscript's life, when it's a part of a mass of manuscripts that are all trying to do something, you see something a little bit different. So you see things that people do again and again and again, and then why they do or don't work. Um, What is an example of something that people, you know, you're sitting there in the editor's chair, all these people are submitting their stories to you wanting to get published. What is something that commonly did not work that you would see consistently across manuscripts? You know, I think people are told to like, to, <laughs> to reach out, and like grab the reader by the throat right away. I think that that was actually like a phrase that was being used. It's weirdly aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> but for a while I was getting all these stories that had like a sex scene or some act of violence or something on the first or second page, um, which was always like, you know, I'd Sometimes it would be like 9 a.m. I'd have my coffee. I'd open up a manuscript and whoa, (laughs) I was somewhere very (laughs) unexpected really fast, Um, which isn't necessarily bad, but often they hadn't really kind of done the work to establish the character and the situation to make any of it interesting as opposed to just kind of alarming. So you, you want, of course, to rivet the reader right away, but there are lots of ways to do that. And as you said, right, like a car accident or something kind of flashy isn't always actually going to be riveting. Often it's something much smaller. So a couple of things come to mind. First of all, what a common sense, useful exercise for any writer to do to try to actually articulate to himself or herself what it is that they want from fiction or from the books that they read and why, you know, to have some sort of criteria for yourself, uh, personal criteria. That's a good thing to know. And it's a good thing to want to then emulate in your own work. And then I think also what I keep thinking about as you're describing the editorial work that you do and the writing work is just how intuitive so much of this is and how there's an element of talent, I think, just innate, raw talent that goes into whether or not a person's writing works and connects some people just have like an unerring instinct it seems like maybe not on the first pass but certainly on the edit and they have a way of rendering their stories in language that's just right and i think maybe another part of it is just having the patience to sit there and do the work and do the constant revision necessary to eventually get it right but uh you know there's so much that goes into it and I don't know if it's, I mean, there are certain fundamentals that can be presented, but ultimately the space, and feel free to disagree with me. It feels like ultimately the space that writers live in when they're doing the work is a little bit abstract. There's an element of just like feeling that goes into it, like knowing kind of intuitively when it's working or when it's not, and then honing that part of yourself and sharpening that so that you get better at recognizing when you're on the right track or, or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. You know, I sometimes talk now I I am a professor and so instead of editing, I'm teaching and I sometimes talk to my students about the idea that you need both knowledge and heat when you're writing something. And 
it's because you want it to feel urgent. You want to feel like the thing that the writer is saying is in some way urgent to them. And then you also want to trust what they're saying. So I think of knowledge and heat as these kind of two poles. And you can work on both of them, I think, in different ways. But it also does involve a kind of, I don't know if it's an intuitive sense exactly, but it involves knowing yourself and knowing what you care about and what you value in fiction and in the world and and not knowing what you want to say exactly, but but knowing those sources, what those sources are for you, the, where the heat is and where the knowledge is. And then just pushing through the frustration <laughs> and the, you know, the, the staring into space long enough to start to create something. That's a great way of putting it. And it's something that has actually been on my mind, like personally, is this sense of urgency. Because I, I agree with you completely. Like, there are so many books in the world. It's easy for me to make the argument that you shouldn't write and publish one unless you have something urgent to say. I mean, that it can feel that way to me anyways. I think there's also a case to be made for just like writing and entertainment. But in the context of literary fiction or literary nonfiction, that urgency is essential for me as a reader. I think it's essential for me as a writer. And so the question that I get to from a writing perspective is how to generate the urgency consistently. And then to think about like those writers who wrote like one or two really good books or maybe just one, you know, and that was all they had to say. And that's okay. <laughs> uh, and then balancing that against these people who have these like really prolific careers and they write like 15 or 20 books or 30 books. And a lot of them are really good. And they just had more urgency about more things. Like, how does that work? You know, how does that stuff get parsed out or parceled out? And can you generate a sense of urgency? You know, is it a matter of intake? Do you see like the line of thinking that I'm on? Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on this? Well, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Have you, what have you arrived at? I mean, I think it's an, in, I, what I tell myself is that it's an intake issue. If you don't have anything urgent to say, you, you might just have dried the well, you know, you need to read and go have some experiences and ponder things, you know, like, you know what you're interested in. There's obviously more to write about, but you just might not have the perspective or the angle yet. Um, but I do sort of buy into this notion that some of us just have more books in us than others or less. And it's not necessarily a value judgment. Like, what would you rather do? Would you rather write write one great book or 30 mediocre ones? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I would pick the one, but that's just me. Oh, I definitely pick the one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you want it to, you know, you spend all this time and effort on it. You want it to be good and you want it to be your best effort and to be fully realized. And so, I don't know. I don't want to just publish just to publish. You know, I want it to mean something and I don't want to waste anybody's time. Right. But then if you're me, at least you think about the writers who did write, you know, many books. And sometimes it feels like people need to write five or six books before they arrive at that book that just feels so, <laughs> so perfect. And I wonder how many of them even knew which book that was. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of writers had a sense of when it was that they really hit their stride and said what they wanted to say. But I mean, that that's an open question as well. So well, yeah. I was, I, but I have to interrupt because what I've seen happen more than once is that writers who write a bunch of books and one of them really hits, which is like usually the case if one hits at all, 
the writers themselves will often not feel that the book that hit is the one that should have hit, or they don't feel it's their best work, you know? And so there's this dissonance between like reader response and a writer's feelings about his or her work. And I'm inclined to trust the reader response. I mean, not always, but generally, like if you're getting that kind of feedback, then you obviously did something that was like super resonant and really worked for a lot of people. And if the project of writing a book is to communicate, like that's the one that's communicating best, is it not? I mean, it can seem that way, but maybe it didn't feel as good as like another book for the writer or didn't, you know, it wasn't the, the writing of it wasn't as pleasurable or they didn't feel like they maybe they don't feel like they realized what they set out to realize quite as well in the one that connects. And then maybe there's the separate issue of writers having contempt for their readers, <laughs> which, which some do, uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's complicated, but I think all of those things have some line of truth to them, you know? Yeah. There's a the question of audience too. And what speaks to a big audience won't necessarily be the same thing that speaks to a, a smaller audience. Sometimes the thing you do that's more subtle or experimental might be speaking to a smaller audience. And I think there's room for both things. Do you have any, like now that your book is out into the world and is finding readers, and I'm sure you're hearing from some of them, is there, have there been any surprises in terms of the kinds of readers that you are, that your book is connecting with? I think you probably have some like general idea of who you think your audience might be as you're writing a book. But sometimes I, I, in my experience, like there can be some surprises in terms of the, the people. Like I remember getting a letter from like an 88 year old woman in a nursing home who read my like druggy coming of age, like <laughs> debut, like, like quasi postmodern or like, you know, and I was like, wow, I did not expect to get a letter from someone in those circumstances. So what, what's it been like for you? Yeah. You know, I think I didn't do much like imagining of the reader as I was writing it felt like a more private experience to me, I suppose. So it's, first of all, it's just been a surprise that there were readers at all. <laughs> <laughs> of course, as it always is. Um, and then I think the second surprise was just how, how different the readers who've really responded to it have been in terms of, you know, gender and age and geography and all sorts of other questions of background and life experience. That's really just meant a lot to me that, you know, people in their 20s have responded strongly. And so if people in their 60s, you know, men and women have responded strongly and, you know, just go down the line. That's, that's been really surprising. Well, I think what, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to posit a theory of, as to why it would have like broad appeal and why you would have this response from all these different quarters is that I think at the core, this is an exploration of meaning uh, of a character who's searching for a way to exist in the world that's meaningful to her, like deeply meaningful. I think all of us want that, whether we admit it to ourselves or not. But I think especially writerly people, that's why you get into this because it's so difficult, but it's so rewarding at that level. Do you have a similar sense of it? Like, is that I mean, a sense of the book? Yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of like the, you know, the urgent question in Kate's life and the one maybe around which all the other concerns revolve in some way. 
the question of who she's going to love, who she's going to, you know, share her life with, what she's going to do with her life in terms of her vocation or her job, um, what her relationship with her family will be, what her relationship with her friends will be, where she'll live, what her relationship to place will be. I do think it all revolves around that question, as you say, of, of meaning. What is going to provide meaning? She's a great character to be sort of along for the ride with because she's a very sensible girl, very thoughtful, smart, person who's really thinking things through, like on all sorts of different levels, but also a character who is willing to take big risks. And those two things don't always go together, <laughs> you know? So you kind of get, you kind of get the, the cogitation and like the, the careful evaluation, but you also get to go along for the ride when she makes these big leaps. And part of it's really moving because she's making leaps in the direction of a better life and in the direction of a stability that has eluded her and her family in her childhood. You know, she's trying to transcend circumstances on a certain level but she also has a, an admirable courage. Uh, I think I'm thinking in particular of making the decision to leave the sciences in pursuit of a career in the arts, which factors into the collection. That's the kind of irrational leap I can get on board with. I'm like, there we go. <laughs> That's my people. <laughs> because, you know, she's on this track where she's probably going to have a great career in academia as a researcher. And what kind of scientist again? Optical yeah, she's an optical physicist. Okay. I don't even know what that yeah. means, but it sounds very <laughs> impressive to me. And uh, and to say, you know what, no, I'm going to write fiction or I'm going to, you know, take this other creative track and it's it's the right call for me. That takes courage and maybe like a little bit of like foolishness, you know, like you have to be willing to, you know, like not consider the odds basically. Uh the the math of it has to go out the window. You really have to be going with your heart and your gut at that, at that point. Yeah, I think that's true. I actually thought for a while that an, you know, an alternate title for the book um, would be vision. And that brings together the, you know, the idea that you're talking about, about those, those big risks that she takes with, you know, her work as an optical scientist and then her attempts at writing and that question of what it means to see the world clearly, to see your place in it clearly, and to be guided by what it is that you see. When I first started writing fiction, I remember bringing in, you know, some stories to workshop and just having the sense that people wanted my characters to be more reckless, which I understood because that's fun and exciting and interesting when a character makes a stupid choice or, <laughs> or right fails in some way or, and I love books like Matt Clam's Sam the Cat in which he has these young male protagonists who just like screw everything up in really funny ways. <laughs> um, but I couldn't quite write those characters in a convincing way. I think just I, I couldn't quite get inside their heads. And so I wrote one story where I, I tried to have the character do everything I would not do in a situation. And it did result in interesting things happening on the page. But it also just didn't cohere. It didn't ultimately make sense. And I remember my workshop saying, well, but why would she do these things? And me thinking, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like there's some internal logic is missing. Like you, it's an interesting 
it brings up interesting questions about like what we're able to write, you know, like what our particular individual range is. And, you know, you can always tell, like, there's always a feeling of authenticity, just like you were saying earlier, like you want to believe the story, even if it's a story by me about a woman in France who raises parakeets. And I guess I start to think about like writers who have like super huge range. I feel like I can only ever write myself. Like, and I think there's a kind of writer who's that way. Uh, I don't know if I could write about the woman in France. I don't know if I'd want to. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know her. Maybe if I got to know her or got a bunch of parakeets or something. <laughs> I love France and I love old women, but I don't know if I could do that, you know. I can't wait to read your next novel and <laughs> discover that it's about a woman in France. <laughs> this is it. Point of genesis right here. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe you acquire range through more like uh, dogged experimentation. You know, maybe it's something that can be learned, but... There's also like the mystical side of me that's like, you know what? I think it's sort of like the number of books that a person has in himself or in herself. Some people just have a different access, you know, or a different uh, register or something. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, the writers I love bring kind of the full force of their imagination and their intelligence to the page. And that can that can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it does mean there's one story or one sort of character they keep going back to and writing about again and again. And then in other cases, you know, they really do have sort of extraordinary range. And I do think it is a little bit of a mystery. I think it must have to do in part with not just who you are, but what you pay attention to in the world, what you feel drawn to paying attention to in the world. Because of course, you know, I think it's very possible to write about a character like yourself from a place of knowledge, but also people who you study and are fascinated by in the world. I think, you know, whether you want to write from inside their perspective is a different question, but, you know, certainly that sort of observation produces knowledge too. So yeah, like the Esme character in your book feels like that project or the product of that kind of observation. Um, and also, but it also like a natural organic extension of your life and experience which ultimately, if a character is going to be believable, it probably has to be, at least in part. Yeah. I mean, even if you're writing about a character very different from you, you know, you felt grief before. And so if they feel grief, you can draw upon your understanding of what grief is. So, you know, certainly I think, right, I always feel like fiction is an amalgamation of observation and, you know, lived experience, imagination and research and I kind of imagine those being like a little Venn diagram and different writers exist in different spots on the overlap between those three things. Like Laura Vandenberg, whose stories I really admire. Right, you know, yeah. she'll, she'll set a story in Paris and the next is set in Antarctica. And, you know, she has a novel set in Cuba. And there are definitely questions and things that come up again and again in her stories, questions of absence and, you know, estrangement and self-knowledge I think but she has just this wild range in terms of what the characters do for jobs where they live and you know she's a writer who really I think uses research as a kind of vessel for her storytelling oh, that's a good point I mean yeah her work is incredible and research maybe that's the intake part of it that's missing and then also just like creative confidence 
like some people just have a lot of confidence. Like, yeah, I'm in Antarctica. I'm going to do it. Like, let's make it happen. <laughs> Whereas like, I'm like, really, I've never been, it's freezing up there, you know, or down there or whatever. Like I can't do this. And you know, I can get more neurotic about it, but, uh, I think that some, sometimes it's about having a sense of play, you know, it should always maybe be that way, but it can be easy to lose, lose sight of, you know, in the like private melodrama of trying to get a story. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. Some of the most fun stories to write for me have been ones where there was a big sense of play and in one of them, which is not in the collection, but you know, I, I was feeling very anxious after the election um, when Trump was elected in 2016 and reading Why? those stories. <laughs> what, was, what was there to be anxious about? <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, I came to realize nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it all turned out fine. Thank God. Yeah. Um, but um, I, at some point I was walking the dog and I just imagined this sort of deal with the devil in which someone would offer you the chance for Trump not to become president, but in exchange he'd be turned into a small white dog and you would have to take care of him, but he would have his same kind of personality. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I came from, but I came home and you know told my partner, we live in a studio in Brooklyn, like a very small one room apartment. And I told him like, I just, I have to write this story. I don't know why, <laughs> but it just arrived and I have to do it. And so I stayed up until like two or three in the morning while he was like sleeping feet away from me, <laughs> writing the story as he, you know, very kindly kind of ignored me. Um, and I wrote the whole story just like that night. It just kind of poured out of me. And, um, and you know, that sort of sense of play and invention and just allowing this crazy thought experiment to take form was just so cathartic. Well, you know, it's a, no, it brings up an interesting point because your book reflects this kind of fabulist tendency as well. It's not all realist fiction. Uh, it begins with a more Kafka-esque, like fabulist uh, story about a character named Loss. I mean, you could describe it better than I, but th there are multiple things happening in your collection. I think predominantly it's in the realist mode, but it has a little bit of both. Yeah, exactly. In an earlier version of the book, I had more fabulous stories woven in, but I came to feel that there was so much variety in terms of the story's forms, their lengths, their settings, that I, I really needed to focus it more. And so ultimately, I decided just to leave that that one fabulous story in there. I'm at loss the other day, which, you know, to my mind, sets up the themes of the collection. And so that's why I felt like it deserved a place and deserved to be first. Yeah, I like the I love the way that it worked that way because it sort of it kind of plays with your expectations a little bit and you sort of I I kind of appreciated it in retrospect. You know, as the co collection proceeded, it started to come into focus like what you were doing with it and uh it also demonstrates admirable range and like, you know, your ability to kind of do both. And what I keep thinking about as I hear you talk is about, I keep thinking about um you have a background in the sciences as as well like Kate Bishop. No. I do not. I'm oh so my... thrilled you thought so, though. <laughs> well, listen, I couldn't help but think that like, oh, well, this is somebody who's taken a very scientific approach to her apprenticeship, like not only through just like self-directed education and through like college education, but also in your work as an editor. There is something sort of methodical and logical 
and sane about how you've learned how to do this. <laughs> Certainly differs on every level from my approach, but that's interesting to me because I totally was like, okay, this makes sense. She's got a science, a background in the sciences, and this is why. I don't know. I felt like the I was, I guess, projecting this all onto you and thinking that this was what was informing the fiction. Uh, that but, feels like such such a victory as a fiction writer to <laughs> convince you. <laughs> I am golf clapping off mic right now. That's fantastic. I mean, it truly, truly was believable, like this optical physicist stuff. And I suppose that's the product of research, like trying to render that. Yeah, absolutely. And this actually makes me remember that in 10th grade, I won the award for best biology student at the end of the year. And I really wanted to win the award for best English student. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do think, you know, my cast of mind, I tend to be very detail oriented and I really like and enjoy precision and methodicalness. So, uh, you know, I do think that that's part of my temperament. I ultimately got best English student a different year after working maybe against my own Look at you. <laughs> native talent. How many of us can claim that we've received best biology student and best English student? <laughs> did you, and did you went to college at age 16? Is that, or am I conflating? I'm now, now I'm all confused who's who, but <laughs> that was you. I really love that. Yeah. Um, that was, that, that is shared with the character. Yeah. Okay. So you were a, you were a, uh, like a really good student. You don't go to go off to college at 16 unless you are, or were you also fleeing circumstances or ready to just kind of get out ahead of, ahead of time? It was sort of a, a mix of things. I skipped eighth grade because my school went up to eighth grade, my the elementary school. And basically they just kind of ran out of curriculum for me. I loved reading and I was a, a good student, although it came pretty naturally. So I didn't have to work very hard for it which later in life was something I had to contend with when <laughs> I realized there were things you had to work hard to, <laughs> to learn or to master. So I, I skipped that grade. And then in high school, yeah, there was some turbulence in my home life. And also I, I did just really enjoy school. And again, it came easily. And so I moved through the curriculum pretty quickly. So ultimately they asked me, would you, you, know, would you like to graduate a year early? Um, and I had to do some like personality tests and some like psychological testing to make sure that everyone thought that was a good idea. And I guess I did well enough on those <laughs> that the school decided that would be appropriate. And so, yeah, so I was 15 my last year of high school, which at the time felt fairly normal. And as I get older, it seems stranger and stranger. Yeah, that's young to be going off to college. And like, did you go off to college the following year? Yeah, yep. So I, my birthday's in May, so I started college just shortly after turning 16 that following year. I wanted to actually take a gap year and travel. And not only was there <laughs> no money for me to do that, right, right. Uh, I was like working for, you know, minimum wage or less than minimum wage throughout high school and saving, but I didn't have that much money. But also my mother was sort of like, I'm not sure that I want my 16-year-old just <laughs> right. traveling on her own. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm old enough to go to college, mom, if I, you know... <laughs> Old enough to go like ride the year rail or whatever it is. And uh, did you go to, and you went to Smith? Is that where you went for undergrad? Yeah, I went to Smith. Wow. So that's got to be a, I mean, for somebody who's raised in rural Vermont in, you know, not the fanciest circumstances, Smith is fancy, I feel like. It is fancy. Yeah. It's funny. It's very politically radical in a way and then also very old fashioned in another way. 
Yeah, I have a friend who went there, and she's from a family that's kind of like radical but old fashioned. <laughs> uh, but a, a great school. I mean, and it's a it's a all girl school, right? It's a, all women. Yeah, it's still all women. Wow. Okay. So how was it the adjustment there? Like, did you immediately take to it, or was it like stranger in a strange land? You know, in in retrospect, I think it was not the ideal college for me. I didn't really have much or possibly any guidance applying to college. <laughs> um, my, I remember when I got into college, I told my mother, and she said, oh, where did you apply? And then I told her. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you apply to Smith? Like, I, mean, I mean, Smith, I mean, listen, you have pretty good instincts if you pick Smith. <laughs> well, so my mom had wanted me to go no more than a couple of hours away by car. So I'd wanted to go somewhere in New York, but that ruled out New York. And then I just... I think it was both loving Sylvia Plath. I'd uh, done a, a report on her, uh-huh. <laughs> like a year-long research project. And so I'd read her diaries and journals and read about Smith. And then I also had a teacher who had gone there. So I asked all my teachers, I think, where they had gone to college. I, was, I didn't know that colleges were ranked. I didn't know that there was like a guidebook with colleges listed. I called information to get colleges numbers and then <laughs> asked them to send me the application. It was in retrospect, very unlikely. <laughs> well, yeah, but also like there's some chutzpah involved and I always advise young people and I'm definitely going to advise my kids like the best time to just sort of plow ahead is when you're young and just like pick up the phone, send a letter to somebody. People love like if I do that now at age 46, <laughs> it's like, ooh. <laughs> Who's this creep? <laughs> but when you're like 17 or 15 or, you know, 19 or 22, like it, people are charmed by that. I think more often than not, people want to help young people. And even if they don't, it's always forgivable, you know, forgivable. Cause you can be like, well, I didn't know I was 15. <laughs> you know? yeah. I didn't know you weren't supposed to show up at the Dean's house and ring the doorbell and ask for admission. I had no idea, you know? <laughs> um, so, but I want to ask you about this transition and to, you know, these questions of class and ambition and to finding yourself existing in realms where people of your socioeconomic circumstances as a child don't always wind up. I think it's something you said either in the book or in an interview. I'm, I'm forgetting which it is now, but you said that being silent was a strategy that you used to occupying these kinds of spaces. Like you learned that this was a way to move through these spaces without what getting into, getting into too much trouble or just a way to kind of navigate them. Yeah. Um, you are remembering correctly. And I think that's something I only understood kind of later in life that that had been a strategy that I'd used, but uh, you know, I mean, one way that it became sort of clear to me quickly, I think that, it might be a useful strategy was, you know, being at Smith and confronting both the fact that I was 16. And if I didn't tell other people that they wouldn't necessarily know that. And so for a long time, by simply not saying anything that would give that fact away, (laughs) I was able to convince people I was older. And then, you know, I didn't have to contend with their reaction to my age. So when you startle people, when you present them with something that doesn't fit into their worldview or disrupts what they've projected onto you, they respond in a way that's emotional and then you need to deal with it in some way. So that was one way in which I think just quickly I realized, oh, just don't say anything and then it won't become an issue. 
And that was true when I graduated too. I entered the working world, you know, at 20. And so I didn't necessarily want people to know that I was 20 when I was working a law firm, for example. (laughs) Um, So I, I just, for a long time, got away with just not saying anything and hoping not to get carded. (laughs) That that makes such sense though. That's exactly why it happened. It was because you were in college at age 16. And of course Mm -hmm. you wouldn't want all of your friends in the dorms to know that you're 16. Because at that age, I think that level of difference in age is a much wider gap, right? Like later on in life, two years is nothing. But when you're 18, 16 seems young or something, you know? Yeah. People would they'd really kind of freak out when they found out. And so eventually it came out and then there was like a a party where all the seniors chose what the first year students would dress as. And so of course, Doogie Hauser was my assignment. (laughs) (laughs) And I grew up basically without television. So I didn't even really know what that meant. So (laughs) I had to then like clarify the assignment so I could fulfill it. But certainly um, age and then also money, as as you suggest. Although at Smith, the first-year students on scholarships worked in the kitchen, and everyone eats in their own house, sort of like in a sorority, I would imagine. So all of your classmates know that you're a scholarship student because you work in the kitchen where they eat. Oh. Um, <laughs> that seems a little, I think that seems a little twisted. No or a yes? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean... Yes. <laughs> y- yes. I, you know, I, I guess maybe in my ideal world, everybody would work in the kitchen, like all of the students, even if they weren't on scholarship. Yeah, because take take also, a shift. Take a shift. Yeah. I love the idea of doing things communally and pitching in and dignifying all sorts of work. Um, so it also seems like a little twisted to say, oh, well, no student should work in the kitchen as well. <laughs> but so there, um, you know, in terms of social class, sometimes staying silent was effective. And then other times there were very clear markers. I'm I'm now like remembering, I want to say it's a conversation I had for this show with an author who was in the UK maybe and was in a similar situation. And then I'm also thinking like, is this something from Harry Potter? And I'm totally just like, (laughs) because I'm reading these books to my kids, my, my son right now. But anyway, it's bringing to like bringing to mind a similar story where the, scholarship students were sort of outed by the fact that they had to work and like serve the other kids who were of, of means, you know, and I don't know, that rubs me the wrong way just because it creates such a bright line of distinction and a class system automatically, you know, like a class divide is just so like uh, sharp. Yeah. I ultimately ended up joining a, a group on campus called allies for low income students. And that was, really meaningful to me to find a a place to talk about some of those things and to think about just practical ways to help other students through struggles that I'd had myself. And the, actually the most fun I had in college was the semester I spent at Pomona out um, in California. I got to spend one semester there and doing uh, what (laughs) I was on exchange. So Smith had a kind of trial policy in place of not, funding study abroad unless it was in a country where people spoke a foreign language because I think they wanted to encourage students to learn a foreign language. But I took too much comp lit initially and then was an English major. And so there is no way that I could do it 
while fulfilling the major. It was just a bizarre quirk no one had foreseen, I think. But the effect was my only study abroad option was actually to go to California. Well, um, it is kind of exotic, I guess. <laughs> it felt like a different, I mean, it, it was, uh, it felt like a very different place. But they had this really great sort of option for students, which was that if you needed money, you could borrow money from this organization at the college at zero interest and, you know, pay it back over time. And so that let me go on spring break, essentially. <laughs> well, they should just give kids. I mean, come on. Like, I was just thinking, too, like, really, if, if it was a just world, the kids of means would work in the cafeteria and serve food to the kids on scholarship who are like scraping by, right? <laughs> yeah, or we just have a different tax system in the country and everything would be different. Yes, for God's sakes. Uh, so, okay, so you go to Pomona, trying to place this in time. Like, were you studying literature there? Was this like the David Foster Wallace era of Pomona or was this different times? This was before David Foster Wallace joined the faculty. I studied literature and I took a philosophy of religion class. It turned out to be oddly punitive and very focused on Christianity. Really? <laughs> the professor would, if he thought we hadn't done the reading, he'd make everyone stand up and then ask everyone a question. And if you couldn't answer the question from the reading, you would be left standing. As a... <laughs> Jesus, this is like uh, Opus Dei or something. Like you almost get lashed. <laughs> it was not an educational approach I'd encountered before. It did motivate you to do the reading, but it, it definitely went on my list of things not to do as an educator in the future. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe don't. It seems like, yeah, it seems, uh, I don't know what this professor was like, you know, outside of class, but it just seems to indicate some kind of anger situation. I had a professor like that, uh, an astronomy professor who, had this like very palpable rage, like sort of roiling beneath the surface. It was kind of terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> there are people like that. It is kind of terrifying. Yeah. It's like, oh, what's going on here? And he had a page boy haircut, which was like doubly weird. So uh, it's just like, it's just uh, unforgettable, you know? So you go to Pomona, you finish your work at Smith and then graduate school MFA. Yeah, so I, I worked in Boston um, at a law firm for a while at, and thought I might go to law school. But I realized that at least the kind of legal work I was doing, if you were really good at it, it meant that you were typically not learning much that was new. <laughs> um, I think that's often the case. You don't want a lawyer who's like learning a ton of new stuff on the job. <laughs> yeah, you just want like an expert at like whatever thing it is that you're confronted with, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure some areas of law that's that's different. But, you know, the, the better I was at my job, the less I was learning. And, you know, I thought that certainly that was something I could do and, and be happy enough with. Um, I liked that the job paid me a reasonable amount and let me spend my nights and weekends going to museums and writing and doing other things I found interesting and personally meaningful. But I thought, you know, maybe I'll take two years and get an MFA and, you know, then probably I'll go to law school or another kind of professional school and have some sort of reasonable career. And so I saved up money so that I could, you know, um, supplement my graduate student stipend and also buy the first car of my life, which was 
1998 Honda Civic. <laughs> Those things run forever. <laughs> Great cars. That's right? my biggest tip, you know, um, for people, you know, who are setting out in the writing life is get yourself a Honda Civic, a used one. <laughs> I want to get this. Uh, I think Honda makes like a electric wagon. I want to say I saw one on the road. I could be, maybe I'm, it was a Toyota, but whatever it was, I want it. I was like, that looks like a cool car. And I like the idea of cars that run, like cars should run for at least 200,000 miles. Like, yeah, why absolutely. do they have to die? Like, I feel like they often die at like a hundred. They need to last longer. Yeah. Yeah. Honda Civics. My mechanic begged me until the end not to get rid of it because it was around 200,000 miles, but he was like, it's got more miles in it. This is a good car. <laughs> Plus you're going to have to come see me like every three months to get it tuned up and it's going to be a cash cow. <laughs> Um, okay. So you decide you're going to go get your MFA as sort of like a, that's kind of like a move you make like, a, like, again, a very like logical, thoughtful move. Like I've done some time at this law firm. I'm going to do this for me. And then afterwards go to law school and then you go where for your MFA? I went to the university of Arizona. Okay. Also David Foster Wallace territory. That's where he went for his MFA, right? Yeah. He wrote an essay about it sort of famously, um, about feeling like the faculty there were not open to the kind of experimentation that he was doing. Okay. Were they open to the kind of experimentation that you wanted to do? Did you find them receptive <laughs> to your genius? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of them were like approaching retirement and they were really nice people who also you just had a feeling, you know, had been teaching for many years and they, you know, they were sort of like, whatever you all want to do. <laughs> That's how it was for me too. I, I oh, went really? to, yeah, I went to graduate school at USC and I want to say the median age of my professors was probably in the sixties somewhere. And that's only because I had a teacher in her forties at the time. They were almost all men in their seventies mm -hmm. and they hadn't gone looking for an agent since like the middle 20th century. And so it was like, <laughs> I'm asking for advice. They're like, you know, I don't know, buddy, you know, like, <laughs> like just go have a drink with somebody in Midtown. I'm like, I don't know if it works like that, you know? And so, yeah, a sense of kind of that plus maybe just like general, like actuarial fatigue, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they were done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my professors had given up on writing feedback. He would say that if you wanted feedback, you could come to his office and he would talk to you about the story. And he, you know, he would, he was serious about that. But I think the best thing he did for me as a writer actually, is he asked me to dog sit his dog, um, two dogs, actually, he and his wife had this beautiful house out in the desert and they would travel a lot. And so I would go and dog sit their dogs and I got so much good writing done in that house. It was just a great place to write. Well, see, there you go. And I was also going to say like, sometimes it sort of depends on your temperament and like disposition or whatever. But like, I didn't entirely hate the freedom afforded me by having these professors who were checked out. Like I didn't want to be micromanaged. I really went into graduate school as a working writer. I was already doing the work anyway. And I just wanted a place to hide out. I also loved meeting other writers, like my fellow students. I think that part of it was like a great relief to me just to meet other people who wanted to do this weird thing, you know, because in the absence of an enforced community, it would have been hard for me to find those people. I guess I could have eventually found them online. Like this was all the beginning of the 21st century for me where online like social communities weren't as 
prevalent, but that was a part of it I liked. It's just like hanging out with other writers. There was such like an ease. I don't know if you had that. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I think it's just an incredible feeling when you can find those people and it feels like you're speaking a common language. Now, is it something that you've carried forward into your quote unquote adult life? I mean, obviously you're still in academia, so you're still kind of in those communities in a more direct way than somebody like me who's moved on from it. But do you have like a, a, a writing group, like separate or like a circle of writer friends who, you know, you kind of trade pages with each other and read each other's work? Not really. There are some people I'll sometimes show things to, and there are some people who show things to me, although those aren't always um, the same people. And my partner's a writer, and so he and I share work with each other and are each other's first readers. But I, I really haven't found that I... I don't want to say that I don't need that or wouldn't benefit from it exactly, but I think... I have located a sense of what I want to do on the page and often can tell if it's not happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I know I'm the only one who can figure out the way forward because people can tell you what's not happening, but I think it's pretty rare for them to be able to tell you the, the way forward. I think usually the writer needs to answer that for themselves. And yeah, often, you know, if, if I do get stuck, I show something to my partner and usually I agree with his advice and then very occasionally I, I don't and I disregard it. And... <laughs> but even if you, even if you don't, it gives you something to work off of, you know, if it's coming from somebody who's, whose evaluation you can trust to be honest, like this is where I start to get tripped up is that like, you know, I guess there are some people you can hand stuff to and they say, oh, well, this doesn't work. And they can be kind of blunt with you, which is what you need. But if somebody tells me that it's good, I don't trust it. I'm going through that with my book right now. Like, have you, has this been the case for you with your book where it goes out into the world and a friend of yours will like write you like the nicest note and you'll be like, Oh, that's so nice. They had, you know, they're obviously lying to me. They don't really believe this. Like I can't trust it. I, I know, like I want to believe they're being sincere, but then I'm like, well, what, what are they really going to tell me? They're not going to tell me they hate it. It's already a book. I mean, you know, they're not going to be like, this is a disaster, but congrats anyway. You know, like, do you know any, any of that for you? Or do you trust the people in your life who tell you nice things? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely trust that it means that they love me, you know, do <laughs> Yes. Do, do I trust that it means that the work itself is as good as they say? It depends on the person, I guess. Yeah. There are people who you, you think, well, they probably just wouldn't have said anything if they didn't really believe this. And, and then there are people who, you know, would say that they loved it regardless of how they felt. But there is something like so exciting and special about someone you don't know, right? Reading the book and responding to it, and just to have that sort of like the purity of that exchange, whether they loved it or they didn't love it, just to feel like that's your honest opinion, and you don't know me, and right, that's not factoring it in any way. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, so like, I was just gonna say that I always trust negative feedback. Mm-hmm. If somebody's like, yeah, this didn't work. I'm like, you are so, so right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then there's that, the, the purity thing and like a complete stranger and the weird thrill it is to like imagine the book in space. I don't know if you have this, but it's like, did this person read my book on a bus? Like, did they read it? <laughs> like, were they in their living room? Like, where were they? You know, like, was it moving around? Were other people seeing it in their hands? You know, like 
you can start to get into that sort of like fantasy headspace as a writer, or at least I can. What is your reaction to imagining the book in space that way? Uh, I think it's just exciting. It's like the whole point of it, right? Is to like launch this thing out into the universe and to like have it be a thing in the world, you know? And it's like, I've always used like the publication process analogy to like sending your kid off to preschool for the first day and like hoping that he, like he doesn't get beat up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so it's like sort of like that. It's like imagining it out in the world, independent of you, like sort of finding its way in the world, you know? So you just sort of hope it doesn't get pushed around too much. And I don't know, ultimately, and you know, maybe you can agree or disagree, but I think most every writer, you know, you spend all this time on the book, often like a long time. And it's this very like intuitive, intense, emotional, abstract, detailed, like it's all of these things kind of experience. And it takes kind of everything to do it and to do it well, to you know, to get it over the line. And then you get to the publication stage where the book like publishes and winds up in stores and is out there in the world. And it starts to feel alien a little bit. It's like, what, what is this thing that I did? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, like you, you're different, like you really are never the same person on any, in any consecutive moment, you know? And so that some version of you wrote this book and then there's the version of you now kind of reflecting on it and, there can be a distance that's sort of odd considering how, how much of it, uh, how much of you it took to write the thing. You know what I'm saying? I've lived with the stories for so long that some of them, like I know parts of them by heart, which is just a strange relationship to have with your own work. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to recite it for you? <laughs> I was trying to tell my partner something someone had said about a, a section of the book. And I just like, quoted the section verbatim. And then I was like, what am I doing? Yeah, Clearly time to move on to the next project. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But it is very strange to just experience it as an object other people have access to. And I mean, I felt like a mild panic at first, you know, seeing friends sending me pictures, holding the book, or it's just a sense of, wait, like (laughs) that's not done yet where you weren't supposed to have that. Don't read it. Thank you for buying it, but don't read it. That's where I'm at right now. Yeah, don't. Great job. You're done. Don't read it. (laughs) Makes an excellent coaster. You could use it as a doorstop. (laughs) Whatever you like. Just no sense uh, in opening it. Looking at the words. (laughs) (laughs) So indulge me here. You you go through that moment of panic, which I think is pretty natural, especially for a work that can seem, at least, like uh, one where there's like a a higher degree of self exposure than say if you're writing like a fantasy novel or something that, you know, is really kind of fictive and layered. Like once you go through that panic and that initial experience of watching the book, like leave you and go out into the world and find its way into the hands of people, you know, people you don't know, is there a next phase? Like, how does it change? Does the panic, does the panic subside or does it mutate into a different kind of (laughs) awful emotion? (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the most like pleasurable things has been seeing people sometimes quote from the book in a review or on Instagram or online somewhere. And just to think, you know, yeah, I, you know, I said what I wanted to say there, you know, how it will be received is a different question, but 
I think it's, it's just a relief to think, yes, that's what I wanted to say. And I said it. And somebody registered it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. is the, and is like your, at some point you just have to surrender to the thing being out in the world. You sort of get used to it. Like, okay, there's no bringing it back. It's out there and it's, people are going to make of it what they will. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think I struggle with perfectionism. I love to focus deeply on something and then can just get lost in it forever. And so it was really hard to let go of the book and to publish it. And well, I was going to say with your, with your background in optical physics, I mean, this makes perfect (laughs) sense. (laughs) I can't believe how fooled I was. I was completely convinced that you are an optical physicist in a former life, but apparently not. There was a, there was this amazing moment in my life when I, I realized I needed to know some things I didn't know. And I was having lunch with a friend named Keelan Hughes, who's an Irish writer and her partner, whose name is Paul. And I, I knew he was a scientist kind of vaguely. I knew he was a researcher and was a professor. And I told them, you know, I have this character who is an optical physicist and I'm in such a bind because I have to know things about this that are very difficult to know, you know, about like what the lab space would look like and feel like and that kind of thing. And like, you know, it's not like a ton that I need to know, but it's some very specific things. And I just have no idea how to go about researching this. And my friend Keelan's partner, Paul, said, oh, well, I actually used to be an optical physicist. <laughs> there you go. That's what needs to happen. But, you know, it's a, it's worth underlining this as like a writerly craft kind of issue is that you you can render. And this also makes me think of Laura Vandenberg and using research as a vehicle or like a vessel or however you put it. You know, you don't have to become an optical physicist to accurately and believably render an optical physicist on the page. You know, you have to immerse yourself into the research process and talk to people or whatever it is to the point where you feel comfortable. And that's an intuition thing. You know, you have to just get the specifics that you need. And most readers, like I never doubted it. I fully believed you were an optical physicist. That's how good of a job you did. So. <laughs> <laughs> All credit goes to my friend's partner. <laughs> yeah. Kudos to Paul. Or is Paul, right? Paul, yeah. But I think I think that's a great point. And I think the opposite thing is also true, that sometimes you can have lived through something or have an experience and not be able to render it because you both need to pay close attention to the thing and really be able to see it. And then you need to be able to sort out, you know, what you want to present to the reader that will give them kind of the full picture. And that's not an easy task either. That's a very good point. Uh, I have experience with that because I write from the inside out, you know, so much. And I think the issue is often one related to time or so I tell myself, like, I don't know if I'm procrastinating or giving myself an out or if it really just does need to process. Like sometimes you need distance from something in order to be able to see it clearly. And it's not for lack of want. You just need time to, I don't know, process it, heal, whatever you need to go through to get to the point where you can look on the thing objectively. And then the other part of your point, which I think is so astute, is that it's one thing to process something. It's another thing entirely to render it for a third party in a way that's interesting at the level of narrative. You know, you could have the most emotional, most uh, dramatic thing happen to you in the world, 
but just like, like stating it plainly on the page isn't necessarily going to be enough for a fiction. Uh, sometimes it can be too much, but you know, sometimes you need to dial it down a little bit so that the person reading isn't like completely, you know, overwhelmed or whatever it is. But those are very good points and easy, easy places to stumble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, fiction, I think is uniquely challenging because nonfiction can be potentially interesting because it's true, but fiction needs to feel true, but also be it interesting because it illuminates something about the world. It's, you know, it's, it's a higher bar. You, you can make anything happen on the page. And so the thing that you're making happen needs to both convince the reader, but also needs to somehow open up the world for them. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I think one of the last things I want to talk to you about, which we uh, haven't gotten to yet, but which I really feel like we should with respect to your book is that this is a book about relationships between women. There are so many female relationships, like different permutations of female relationships that are explored on the page. There's mother, daughter, there's sisterly, and then there's the, the girlfriends. I think the Esme Kate relationship, but we haven't gotten to Agnes and for, I'm blanking on the mother's name. She was always just like mom to me. Is there a mother's name that I'm totally spacing? You know, I changed it a few times and now I'm worried I'll get it wrong if I say it aloud. It <laughs> only comes up ju- in one story. <laughs> okay. Well, let's just say mom. Okay. This is making me feel better. So it's mom and then there's Kate and then her younger sister, Agnes, and then there's Esme. And I think that's it, right? Those are the primaries anyway, like female relationships that carry through the book from story to story. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought each of them was so deftly drawn and... I found the mother character, much like Esme and Agnes, but I mean, the mother character is very compassionately drawn to me because she's drawn with flaws, but a ton of love. I'm thinking of the story where they go to the beach. Oh, geez. It's the name of the hotel, right? Yeah. The the sea latch. The sea latch. Yeah. They go to the beach and they're all like walking and there's like, it's crowded because it's like tourist season or whatever. And the mother is anxious about crowds and her anxiety is just sort of presented as matter of fact in the story. There wasn't a lot of preamble or detail about it. And yet it wasn't surprising to me. There's like a matter of factness that I was like, oh yeah, that's how you do that. You don't need to like build it up and get into like a clinical explanation or background you know what i'm saying and you don't need to also like justify it or make it okay for the reader i I don't know they just i found that to be like really spot on and also instructive it was well done thank you yeah you know i think one of the challenges that i always think about when i'm writing is you know how to create drama on the page without making it false drama and then that, I think another thing is, you know, not wanting to explain things too much for the reader. And that means, you know, sometimes just, you know, allowing a character to exist on the page in a way that suggests they have a history and there are things that have formed them, but, you know, not, not trying to kind of connect the dots and say, well, this is why the mother is the way she is and not using, you know, I think 
a problem with using diagnoses in fiction is that that language can also kind of flatten or reduce. And so by being just very particular and specific, I think, you know, hopefully you can evoke a character who feels more complex and more real. That's a little bit more like, like along the Hemingway lines that we talked about earlier, you know, just that carving away. And also it is a thrill as a reader to like make those rapid fire connections on your own. And if you overstate the case, you deprive the reader of that. That's always worth remembering. It is incredible how much pleasure there is as a reader or as someone who's um, viewing art, visual art. I think this is true of two, you know, in entering those gaps and doing some of the work yourself. And it makes me think about teaching and how one of the most useful things I learned about teaching is this idea that acquiring knowledge is an active process that needs to be undertaken by the learner. So as a professor, you can have this sense that it's incumbent upon you to deliver via a lecture, for example, all of the knowledge that the the student needs to acquire. But that doesn't actually work. <laughs> it's not actually how we learn. So now I think it's instead a little bit like setting up like a pool shot for someone who's just learning how to play pool so that, you know, they can actually knock the ball into the the pocket. I don't play pool, so hopefully that's the right term. No, you got it. That was it. <laughs> um, but, but helping people pay attention to three things, for example, and put those things in relation to each other so that then they produce the insight that you're hoping they'll arrive at. And as a writer, I think you're doing something similar for the reader. And it can be sort of a generous impulse to over-explain or put more on the page than you, you need. It can also come out of a kind of insecurity. Maybe they won't get it if I don't do this. But often I think work is stronger if you just carve away a little bit and leave space for the reader to enter. Yeah. This is making me think about this David Foster Wallace essay. Of course, he's like a maximalist writer. Um, but even so, I, you know, when I read his best work, I don't have the sense that there's anything that I would cut, you know. Right. And he's got this one essay in which he goes on at length on what feels a bit like a digression. And then the next section is headed something like, I do have a point. Right, right. <laughs> you know, people have all sorts of strong opinions about him. Uh, I really love the essays. Mm -hmm. That's always the part of his work that I responded to most strongly. And uh, like you can, you know, his personal life has been parsed and, you know, raked over the coals and everything else. And like there's fair criticisms to anybody's work and art and, you know, life, of I guess, ultimately. But you'll never be able to convince me that he was not like rocket brained. Like you read his work and it's just like, wow, he is way smarter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like just his, his machine was clearly like super, super high functioning in a, in a way that exceeds most people's. Yeah. That's certainly the experience I have of his mind on the page as I'm reading. And I love just that sense of um, like, tension or correspondence between the reader's mind and his mind that sense that he always knows when your patience is being taxed or or when you're confused he's gotten too technical and then he'll restate something in very plain language and there's something just so pleasurable about that kind of dance between your mind and his mind and I think that's true of many of the writers I love the most I think people need art you know especially art made with solid intentions you know, or from like a true place, uh, which 
brings me to, I guess, my last line of questioning, which is like, now that this book is making its way out into the world, is there another in the works or are you taking a break? Like where are things with respect to the next book? Yeah, I'm working actually on two different book projects right now. Um, I always have ideas for other books I could be writing and, and my partner is always like, maybe you should finish the first two. <laughs> <laughs> and I've written full drafts of both of them. One is a novel that draws upon my experience in Boston working at an immigration law firm. And I wrote a full draft of that, disliked it, kept the maybe 10 pages that I liked throughout the rest, wrote another draft, disliked most of that. And I think I will probably throw out most of that. <laughs> but I do think I'm getting closer to understanding what I want that book to be. And by and the way, that, I got I got to pause because you're, like, you're saying these things that I think are, are really resonant, but also like really meaningful from a writer, a writerly perspective, which is that's the process. Like that's it. Like writing entire books, plural, on the way to the finished book is not atypical. It's like what the work is, you know, as you're trying to sort out the material. It's an extravagantly wasteful process. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Agnes Martin burned all of her work that she made basically up until the age of 40. She would have a bonfire every year <laughs> and just burn it. She didn't like it. Maybe that's uh, but what... she she did finally arrive at an understanding of what it was she wanted to do. And then I think less of the work got burned. So I'm hoping for that. <laughs> yeah. And also like a later life, being prolific in later life and just like churning out meaningful work that people enjoy. That's a lovely way to spend the back half of your existence, right? <laughs> I, think that's an, I think that's a totally great thing to aspire towards. You know, that's certainly the track that I'm hopefully on. And I think that, you know, uh, as a debut and this, just forgive me, I'm now like panicking inside. This is your debut, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah. This is an auspicious beginning. Uh, it's a lovely book. It's beautifully and carefully rendered and totally involving, like absorbing fiction that I believed, you know, to use your litmus. Uh, I, I probably believed it too much. I think <laughs> I will forever <laughs> consider you a physicist in my mind. And, uh, <laughs> I congratulate you on it. I'm eager to see what you come up with next. Keep doing the work. And thanks for being so generous in conversation. You know, I, I feel like both this book and this conversation like activated me. You know, there's so much that it brings to mind. And uh, that's always a good sign, right? Like it's, uh, it's energy giving. Thank you so much. I can't think of a, a nicer... Thing to hear about my book and about this conversation. All right, that was Kara Blue Adams. Her story collection is called You Never Get It Back, available now from the University of Iowa Press. You can find Kara online at karablue.com, C A R A blue.com. Her handle on Twitter is at Kara Blue Adams, and the same goes for Instagram. One more time, the book is called You Never Get It Back. Go get your copy right now. Read it. Just trust me. The Other People Podcast is listener supported. Everything is free. The entire archive is made available to you, the listener, for free. Nearly 800 conversations and counting. So if you like this show, 
If you listen regularly and you get something from it, I hope you'll support it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. Throw a dollar in the hat every month. Tip your server. You can move up the scale. You can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will send you a postcard. I will sing you happy birthday on your birthday. And I'm not even kidding. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This show has its own newsletter. To sign up for that, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on newsletter in the left sidebar. And a reminder, if you want to pre-order my novel, you can do that at bradlisty.com. And then if you want to email me your uh, proof of purchase, a screenshot, I will send you a sticker and a note in the mail. The email address, again, is letters at otherppl.com. All right, subscribe to the show's YouTube channel. It's free. Go get the Other People app. It's free. I'll talk to you soon. All right? Peace in Ukraine. And fuck Putin.